continue to worship the Lord with God's Word. And um, I've chosen to preach uh, Psalms 20 this morning because it's a royal psalm. It's a kingly one in the perspective of God's kingdom. Now, Elder King Ho preached Psalms 2 last week. It is the first of what we call the royal psalms. Altogether, there are 10 of them in the 150 psalms. So they're quite significant. Uh, before I knew I was going to, uh, he, Elder King Ho was going to preach um, or was preaching Psalms 2, I was impressed to preach Psalms 20 already. It happens to be the second royal Psalms in the book of Psalms. Now, I prayed and settled with preaching this text because I do want to encourage and spur you on uh, with my prayers in the Bible, from the Bible, as I first preach in this church with the prayers from the book of Ephesians. So now, would you turn uh, with me to Psalms 20? Psalms 20. And I'll read his word. <coughs> Psalms 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. May and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the King. May he answer us when we call. Let's come before the Lord in prayer that he may show us his word. Oh Lord, we come before you remembering that you are first the Lord of all King. Lord, as King you reign, as King you decree, and Lord, all shall come to pass according to your word. For none of them shall come to pass, not one iota will be missed. And so Lord, speak to us with your word this morning through Psalms 20, that our souls may not be uh, burdened down, but Lord, indeed, you'll be lifted up to praise you all the more. So Lord, help us as I also preach the sermon here that will convict my heart as convicting others as well. So Lord, help me and help all of us. In Christ's name, we do pray. Amen. Now to some, life in Singapore can be mundane. But for those of us who have returned from livings, living in other countries, we get to appreciate Singapore's orderliness, or I want to say orderliness, all right, orderliness, stability, cleanliness, healthcare system, right? Really good, I can attest to that. And the security we have, right? We are really safe in Singapore. Yet, if we are honest with ourselves, we do face challenges living in Singapore. Now, 
compared to people living in war-torn Ukraine and Russia, we should be thankful. We should be thankful for a peaceful life, although mundane. We are not facing life-threatening situations daily. Or are we? When God people, God's people see their lives and world through the lens of God's word, what do you see? A quick overview of the book of Psalms will inform us God's people lived a very challenging life. It was not business as usual. Out of the 150 Psalms, about half of them were songs of lament, 49 of them, and 14 of them, what we call imprecation, imprecation psalms. And imprecation is a curse uh, that invokes a misfortune upon someone's enemies. No, we are not here to invoke any misfortune on anyone today. So be at peace, relax, not to relax till you kind of fall back and sleep, all right? Now, the book of Psalms is a collection of what we call song, songs and poems that contain instructions to have a blessed life, to have this happy life, to have a fulfilled life. The book of Psalms is also known as the book of praises to some of the Puritans because even when the mood of the psalm come to, comes to its lowest point, in the most negative, praise is the final word, except for two psalms, Psalms 44 and Psalms 88, right? There's a reason for that. I won't go into that today. But largely, the books of Psalms end with praise. Why are God's people then facing such tension between lament on the one hand and praise in God's word and life's reality? We know this is life reality. And the reality and truth is, God's people are living in a time of the already and not yet until Christ returns. Now, Burke Parson, the pastor who succeeds R.C. Sproul's uh, church, he put it this way, we wait until the already and not yet between what our Lord has declared is already true and what has not yet been revealed. However, our waiting is not in vain, nor is it a passive waiting or an isolating or an isolated waiting. Rather, we wait for our groom so that he might gather his bride from every tribe, every tongue and nation for his glory. We wait with hopeful expectation, with active participation in the mission of God and in the community with the church of Jesus Christ. When God's people experience God's reign in their lives, business is not as usual. They are not fighting for peace, as the world is always saying. They're fighting for peace. God's people is not fighting for peace but they are fighting for God's reign in their lives. And 1 Timothy 6 will tell us, right? Fight, fight for the faith. 
to live out the faith. God's people are not fighting for peace, but there is the fight against man's indwelling sin. There is the fight against the world's sin. There is the fight against Satan's kingdom and his schemes to break God's people and the church. So there are three things man has to fight. Man's own indwelling sin, the world, and Satan's scheme. So a happy life is not a life of comfort in or on our terms, but one that is actively participating and struggling for a blessed and fulfilled life on God's term and His reality. So the thing is this, the sooner we come to terms with God's reality, the sooner we live a happy and fulfilled life as the Psalms kind of lead us into. Now, for that reason, some of the Psalms are composed to remind us that the Christian life is not business as usual when God reigns in our life. So, in our text today, Psalms 20 is originally a prayer used in temple worship before a battle, right? The Psalms reflects a situation and a sequence that described, uh, was described in 2 uh, Chronicles Chapter 20, verse 5 to 19. It is a prayer. The sequence goes like this. A prayer before battle, oracle or what called vision of, uh, of salvation and concluding with praise. So it's kind of a reflection of Second Chronicles 20. Going to the temple was required preparation before implementation. Psalms 20 provides a window into these two key components of war, preparation and implementation. The purpose is to spur and lift God's people up to prepare and have confidence to do battle for God's kingdom. You know, in our traditional Chinese wedding, the groom is to battle, right? through many obstacles to get the bride. And the bride is to sit uh, and wait, doing nothing. Now, if Christ is the groom and the church is the bride, don't you think there's something wrong, very wrong with this picture when the bride sits down and do nothing as, you uh, know, uh, do nothing if she tr truly loves the groom? Right, so... I know some of us like Chinese wedding, that part of the zhuang men ding, right? Um, think, young people, think more about this. Pray about it, okay? Whether you want to do that. And the bride sits there and do nothing. It's a very strange picture, you know? Yes, I done it, okay? So I own up. After that, I kind of like, whoa. You know, after I, I read all this, I said, what? Why, why did I do that? Anyway, now, Psalms 20 reminds God's people and the church that we should be battling alongside with Christ to be in union with Him. Now, Do Dr. Mark Furtado is the, what we call the, probably the best Hebrew teacher there is, uh, still alive. Uh, he comments this. He says, Psalms 20 was originally composed for use before some particular battle. Right? Then, it could have been used before any battle, and finally, came to be used 
in the face of any threatening danger. Now again, from the overview of the book of Psalms, evidently, God's people were often in the thick of battling for their existence. Even for their existence, to exist, it was a challenge for God's people. They were constantly facing challenges and even, again, in dangerous ones. Now look at our text, verse 7. You just go down there, right, briefly. I will go through every verse, but just look briefly now. Our text, verse 7, and read to us. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord, our God. The some here are the enemies of God, all right? So don't get it wrong. It's not some Christians, some believers that trust in church. No, this is some they are enemies of God. Now look back up the second part of verse 5. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. Now here the imagery of some is, right, warfare. That's right, warfare. So now make a smart guess to this question. What are the two most common imageries in the Old Testament and New Testament? That's right, right? They are the kingdom of God and warfare. Right at the beginning of the chapters uh, of Genesis, God wants to establish His kingdom through man's rule of His creation. But there is also Satan's kingdom after the fall, warring against God's kingdom. That's the beginning of the book, kingdom of God. The last book of the Bible, Revelation. The whole book focuses on the cosmic warfare of God's and Satan's kingdom. For that reason, Westminster Shorter Catechism question 102 asks, what do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer later, so take note of this. What do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come. We pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it and that kingdom of glory may be hastened. In other words, just from the Shorter Catechism, we know there are three kingdoms. The kingdom of Satan, or those who obey Satan, the kingdom of grace, or those who obey God, and the kingdom of glory, or those who will reign with Christ in glory when He returns. In the Lord's Prayer petition, we ask that Satan's kingdom to be destroyed, that God's kingdom of grace on earth may prosper, and the time of the third kingdom of glory may come quickly. There is only one winner, and the book of Revelation tells us that God is victorious. But in the meantime, we need to fight in God's kingdom of His grace. Not infighting against one another, but fight against God's enemies. God's enemies are those who do not obey Him. How should God's people fight then, you may ask, and ask rightly so. 
Psalms 20 actually instructs us. It is a prayer by God's people to save their king. Why? Because they knew their survival and flourishing were tied to their king. Now, having said that, again, Dr. Furtado reminds us that this psalm could be used before any battle or when the church faces any threatening danger of their existence even. With that in mind, it's right to ask how can people, uh, God's people survive and thrive in worship and warfare? Both seems to be strange, but it does, even as we are doing right now. It's both worship and warfare pushing back Satan's kingdom. There are two lessons God's people could learn from Psalms 20, to live and thrive when business is not as usual. The first is the aspects of preparation. The second is the attitudes of implementation, or you can simply say the, the aspects of doing, or right, leaving it out. Now let's come to the aspects of preparation. There are two, the spiritual and the organizational. Now verse 1 is simply invoking God to protect the king and his kingdom. But it's not calling out to any God. God's people is calling out to the specific God of Jacob. Why? Because God redeemed, God saved, God protected Jacob and his 12 sons in many life-threatening situations. And if you look, and this is probably God of Jacob always when they say that, it's probably invoking or bringing us back to Genesis 35, right? Jacob was in distress, not just the first time or the last time. He was really in distress because when he's moving with his sons, right, they could come under attack by the cities. And he was crying out. Now, Jacob, as you know, he was not like a goody two-shoes, you know, right? His life was full of mistakes as well. But God continuously redeemed him. And even so, right, God blesses him as Jacob wrestled with God. Jacob saw the ladder of heaven. So Jacob was blessed because he's chosen by God simply. His children would become the 12 tribes of Israel. So when they invoke the name of God to Jacob, they remember his protection for him and Israel, the very existence. But most importantly, God's name is Yahweh in the Hebrew language. Just now we sang one of the songs, right? God's name. God's name, the original name is Yahweh in the Hebrew language, which, which points to the creator God of all things. Essentially, God's people are to pray to the creator God. Warfare in God's kingdom is first and foremost spiritual. In calling out to Yahweh, it is a prayer to creator God. It is a prayer to prepare for war spiritually. Then we must all ask, what does one request in preparation for warfare? Now look at the second part of verse uh, 1 and then verse 2. May the name of the Lord, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. 
God's people are to pray. God's people are to pray for two things: protection and reinforcement. It is like the Ukrainian soldiers fighting in the front line. Then they radioing back to the base camp in the city of Kiev. They will call for first support to defend their front line, just holding them back. And then after that, they will call for help to push back the attacks because there's no point just defending because they know if they keep on doing this, eventually they will overrun. So they will radio back for what? Reinforcement, then to push back and even to pursue their enemies. Likewise, when individuals or the church face imminent danger, of course, we need to take cover from the bullets kind of spitting at us. But as soon as we find shelter and, and take a breather, breathe deeply, we need to call for support to get us out of danger. We pray and call out for God's protection. Now back to the text. Why should God send help and protection? One might ask then. You see, it's because God is simply gracious to the sinner. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, and the first part of it, May he remember all your offerings and regard with favour your burnt sacrifices. Now the he here, he remember is God. May God, all right? And your here is the king. So you may read first, you know, all of us, 20th, 21st century reader will immediately think it's your, mine, right? It's not. In the context, it's your is the king. The prayer is to remind God, even the king was a sinner. The king also has to make atonement for his sin. And he did. So the first aspect of preparation when business is not as usual is to prepare spiritually. God's people are to prepare for warfare spiritually with prayers. Then again, what do God's people pray for? They pray for protection and reinforcement. And their prayers are not random. They are specific and they are also strategic. How is that so? Look at verse 4 with me. May he, grant, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Right? Again, he is God, your is the king's. Right? They pray that God will answer the king's plan. The second aspect of preparation is organizational. Anyone who has served in the army and has led a team will know the importance of a battle plan. Without a battle plan, the king's soldier would not know what role they play and what to do. Without a battle plan, the king and soldiers will not know how essentially to win the battle or a battle. Common sense will tell us that to engage in any battle without any planning and without clear destination of roles, that will eventually bring chaos and finally defeat to the people. That is exactly Satan's strategy. He is the master of chaos. To fool God's people into thinking, feeling God's love is all I need. Feeling God's love is all there is. And thinking that the knowledge of God 
is all they need for a blessed life. Yes, true, you have the knowledge, but as Deacon Yao Kai has exalted us, we must lift out that intentionally. How many has fallen to Satan's rampage without a strategical plan for living out God's life? They do not have a plan to do God's work in their life, their families, and even in churches. And we do have a godly admission for our lives, families, and the church, don't we? We do, right? Now, granted that sinners may be self-reliant to do their own plans, but make no mistake that no planning to please God and do battle with Christ could be worse. How is it so? It may be a sure sign of gross self-reliance and even arrogance. I don't need a plan. It's planning to fail, right? But in our text, because the king had battle plans to win a war, God's people can direct their prayers strategically according to the king's plan. You read the text very clearly. It comes straight out. They are praying according to king's battle plan. They had great hope that the king and the people both will be saved. So it's not just the king's responsibility. The people knew their responsibility is to pray together. Look at, uh, look at the beginning of verse 5, and we read here, May we shout for joy over your salvation in the name of our God. Set up our banners. You see how closely is linked for the Lord's salvation, or the king's salvation, which is the king being saved, and the, Lord, uh, and the rest of them will set up the banners of winning victory. So they will be shouting of joy, not because they have a great king, but because they have a mighty God. That was their trust. They were in prayer. So don't be mistaken. It's not the plan that works. It's the mighty God who works through the plan. Look at the end of verse 5. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions, right? All your prayers. They anticipate their mighty God will answer their prayers and they will rise their victory banners in the king's homecoming victory parade. So in verses 4 and 5, there is a growing confidence that the king will be victorious. God's people can have the confidence that God will fulfill their request in the positive in the positive, giving victory to the king according to all his plans. Now, they pray expectantly to win because they have a victorious God who would provide the king with plans to succeed. That is their expectant. Win, not lose. They, and here are the two lessons God's people could learn from Psalms 20. To live and thrive when business is not as usual. The first, again, is the aspect of preparation. Preparation before, right? Preparation, okay, before that. The first is aspect of preparation, and there are two of those, right? The two aspects are spiritual and then organizational. But to live and, and thrive when, when not business as usual, other than preparation, second lesson God's people could learn 
is a proper attitude of implementation. So it's not just the doing, it's, it's the attitude of doing it. In our text, two attitudes are highlighted here. They are the attitudes of confidence and an attitude of humility. Now look at verse 6 with me. Now I know that the Lord saved his anointed. He will answer him from his heavenly, holy, holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Now I know he will answer. God's people declare with confidence that he will save the appointed king. He saves the king not because the king is good, but because he is God who has chosen the anointed one. In fact, God's people has such confidence that they declare he will answer. All right, or he answers. God will answer three times. In verse 1, in verse 6, and in the last verse, 9. If verses 1 and 9 are the bookends of the Psalms, which it is, then the emphasis is God will answer their prayers with certainty. You see, God's people have the confidence that God will answer their prayers because God is certain to save His anointed. Save His people. Save the King. Save His people. It is not their wishful thinking. It is not at all. Though God is in heaven, separate from our world, He is not doing nothing. He is not like the Greek gods. He's not like the Canaanite gods who are just amusing themselves watching over man's affair from the heavens. The end of verse 6 implies that the God of Jacob is actively participating in human history with his mighty right hand. In other words, God authorizes his whole resources, all his resources to save his anointed. The entire universe, all his resources, he authorized them to save you, God's people. God's enemies trust in their might of their horses and chariots. They trust in their chariots. In other words, they trust in their intelligence and resourcefulness to construct war machines, whatever they is supposed to be, right? They trust in their horses. In other words, God's enemies trust in the power and might of their resources. They trust and depend on their earthly strength against God's people. But God's kingdom people can trust the Lord to win. Why? Because His name is Yahweh, the Creator God. To put God's enemy's strength into proper perspective, their strength is borrowed from the almighty Yahweh, their creator. If the strength of God's enemies are like tsunami waves, right, of the ocean against God's people, then God is the sun who supplies the energy to the waves. Tsunami waves have no inherent power on its own without the power of the sun. God is infinitely more powerful than all of God's enemies combined. So ultimately, God's people will defeat their enemies. 
the enemies will not only be defeated, but they will be brought low. They will collapse and they will fall in the sense that they will be humbled by God's people. And we see this over and over again in the Old Testament. And even the revelation later on that will reveal that part as well. But before God's people see the eventual and total defeat of their enemies, they may too experience temporal defeat. In the Bible, various narratives show us. We know that God humbles His people before they rise up again victoriously. Before God delivered Israel out of Egypt, they were all enslaved. Remember the God of Jacob? Jacob and his 12 tribes, his son after Joseph, they lived happily ever after in Egypt? No, they were enslaved before God delivered them victoriously. Before God helped Israel and gave Israel victory at Ebenezer in 1 Samuel, they were defeated by the Philistines, in fact, to some degree of shame. Israel was humbled before they repented of their idol worship. If you look back at all this, right, it all boils down to the worship of idols that God is trying to rid the people of for their own good. So God's people knew that it meant to be humble. They knew what it meant to be humble before God. When they wrote this psalm, they knew what it meant to be humble before God. The attitude of prayer in our text is with great humility. They have an attitude, uh, they have an attitude of humble confidence when they pray. And verse 9 begins with, Oh Lord, save the king. God's people have great confidence that the Lord will save the king. At the same time, they approach God with humility, a final prayer. May He answer when we call. Guys, with great humility. God's people need to call upon the Lord to battle for them, for the church, and for His kingdom's sake. There are two lessons God's people could learn from Psalms 20. Again, to live and thrive when business is not as usual. God's people are to prepare to engage warfare with prayers and plans. And when they battle, they must have the attitude. Right? Attitude is very important. Attitude of confidence and humility before God. You see, war is lost and fought, won or lost, uh, not because of how many. It's how their attitude is, really. Right? If you have been to military schools, right, and they taught us, war sometimes and most of the time is not won because of numbers. It's purely the attitude of engagement. How we fight matters. So, they must, God's people must have the confidence and humility before God. So here Psalms 20 informs and instructs the Christians and church living in two kingdoms and of course expecting the third one to come soon, we are living in two kingdoms, Satan's and God's and the third is coming. The victory of God's kingdom is certain. I say again, the victory of God's kingdom is certain. The third kingdom is connected to the victory of the 
fallen but risen King, Christ Jesus. God's people are instructed to pray for the success of their church in battle. However, I would say on many occasions, God's people have failed to fulfill this duty. When Jesus arrived as their king, they couldn't recognize him. The disciples failed to pray for Jesus in his finest hours at the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet, it is precisely through their failures that Christ emerged to secure victory for his people. Through his resurrection from the dead, Christ has ensured that victory is assured for his people, his followers. Now, consequently, God's people are called to play their roles within the church and actively participate in Christ's victory. God's church has been endowed with the necessary gifts for her members to fulfill their roles within the body of Christ. Therefore, it is crucial for individuals to recognize their specific season of life and step into the role that God has assigned to them. The roles assigned could manifest as being a, as simple as a student of God's Word. No, you are children, you are student of God's Word, a teacher of the Word, an administrator for the church, a parent, an elder, a deacon, or in various other roles in a church. In summary, in the army of God, each member must fervently pray and courageously embrace their responsibilities within all the whole body of Christ. If we are God's people and His church, then we shouldn't be surprised that we are in the thick of battling against Satan's kingdom. We are battling for God's kingdom to rule on earth through the church in this fallen world. So we must battle for the existence of the church. We battle with our prayers. We battle with worship. We battle with songs. We battle with God's word. We battle with the preaching, proclaiming God reigns and He's victorious. So it shouldn't surprise us that Psalms 20 is both worship and warfare. Christ has planted the victory flag at His cross, symbolizing His ultimate victory his ultimate wing. So, dear friends, Christ Jesus has fought for your souls and He will win. So, if you confess Jesus as your Saviour and Lord today, you receive Him as your champion to pray, His champion to win your fights against evil and sin in you and those around you. He is certain to save you. Fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, for God's people, it is not business as usual when God reigns. It is like the people living in Ukraine. It is not business as usual. A McKinsey consultant report recently came out and it's, you know, kind of written this and showed this to the world. In the last 14 months since Russia warred with Ukraine, Ukraine's people early focus was on what? Survival and lying low, right? They were bombarded. They were on survival and lying low initially, but they didn't stay down. 
They got up on their feet, they arise. They got up on their feet, they prioritize adaptation and contingency planning to ensure their continuity of their lives. Something surprising actually came out from the report. You know, why is that? Surprise everybody, right? That says some businesses have adapted and learned to thrive even in war times. They are uncertain if they would have the ultimate victory, yet they thrive. They came up from the low hiding ground. They thrive in doing what they can do. Now, if the people of Ukraine can thrive in war times, then all the more God's people must thrive when we have a victorious king in Christ. And rightly so, then the Apostle Peter wrote to alert God's people to the reality of this world in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, it's our duty to engage in the battle against the devil and fervently strive to live out Christ's victory. From 2 Timothy chapter 2, God calls out His people with this, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier get entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So you see, there are no 100% civilians in the kingdom of God. You are 100% athletes. You are 100% farmers. And you are definitely 100% soldiers. It is like what? This is like some men and women of Singapore. Yeah? They are ready soldiers after two years or more of full-time national servicemen. We call NSF still, right? Yeah? NSF, full-time national servicemen, two, two or two and a half years. I did two and a half years. But we keep on training as battle-ready what? NS soldiers. Though we go about our daily lives as uni students, bosses just come out to work, workers, fathers and mothers, you know, and definitely churchmen or churchwomen. I still have my essential army gears with me for battle, though I have passed my age, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. I've passed my age for what I'm supposed to do. Why? Because I always am ready to pray and protect for my family and those who I love. And then 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 17, kind of shouts out to me, reminds and exhorts God's people, stand firm, hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. People of God, you are to wear your spiritual armour, pick up the shield and sword, take up your roles and responsibilities in the church, hold your position, hold the line. The attitude matters. You need to hold the line, right? And call out for reinforcements. Pray. 
And may I remind all of us then this, you are not fighting for Jesus, right? Sometimes we think, oh, we are fighting for Jesus. No, we are not fighting for Jesus. But Christ is fighting alongside with you to push back the darkness of Satan's kingdom. It is not business as usual. We must battle alongside with Christ. It is a battle for God's kingdom of grace to reign in this church. We are not fighting for peace like the world. I say again, we are not fighting for peace. Because the peace in this world are false. They are false peace. We inherently knew that. And we live like it's a peaceful life. Yes, we should. We should treasure the time of, at peace. But we are truly fighting for peace in submission to Christ's reign. I say again, truly, if there's any fight, we are fighting for peace in submission to Christ's reign in our lives, mine included, right? Then Christ's words will make sense to you when he says in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be... Uh, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, there is really a false peace in this world that is not ours. And we really want to have peace. We have to fight for peace in submission to Christ's reign. We must fight for God's kingdom of grace in the church. We must fight for God's reign in the lives of his people to worship and glorify him till his kingdom of glory come so in god's kingdom warfare as the psalm is the final word is praise this is the word of god